0: Hello, everyone. I am that Wims guy here for another episode and a quick programming note before we get started. There was a problem with the feed for the episode that appeared on Monday of this past week, and I had to reupload it. So we lost some stuff. And I know it's not showing up on the Anchor app now, but it is showing up in, in all the Google and Apple and podcasts, uh, Apple Play now, which it wasn't to begin with. But uh, here for today's episode is someone who doesn't need any introduction, but we're going to ask for one anyway. This is Mr. Masati. How are you doing, Moss? Doing oh,
1: well, Lee. Yeah. We've been enjoying your podcast.
0: Well, thank you. And thank you for, uh, for being a participant and playing along. Uh, I'm sure most people are familiar with you. Most people that were listening to the show anyway are familiar with you. Uh, but go ahead and just give an introduction if you would. And we froze up.
1: Uh, basically, started, uh, through today, uh, started teaching private citizens, 1981. Uh, ran Lethal Force Institute in New Hampshire from uh, uh, October, no, no, excuse me, spring of uh, 1981 to TISMASAT a group around the country. Uh, 19 years as chair of the Fire and Steadly Force Training Committee for American Society of Law Enforcement Trainers, been on the Advisory Board of uh, International Law Enforcement Educators and Trainers Association since the beginning. Couple of years as co-vice chair of the Forensic Evidence Committee for National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. Uh, full-time instructor, part-time writer, part-time expert witness. Okay. That's about it.
0: Um, how did you get involved in firearms training? Like, what spurred your interest? What, what sent you down this road?
1: Uh, it was it was a very venal motive in the beginning. Uh, I started competitive shooting informally in my early teens, and formally in my late teens. Uh, back then, about the only game in town for a private citizen was bullseye, and that was getting a little bit boring. A friend of mine invited me to watch a police PPC match. And I said, hell, how do we, how do I get into that? And they said, well, you've got to be a cop. I wound up becoming a uh, reserve officer in a small department. Uh, They had just lost their firearms instructor. And I had uh, had some articles published uh, in gun magazines and on the Frail, reed thin basis of that got appointed as department firearms instructor at the age of 23. So that sent me on a crash course to Smith and Wesson Academy and every place else I could to to get the best training I could to share with the officers. And well, I don't think being a gun writer is a, a credential for training police or training anyone else for that matter. What it was, it was an entry card. Uh, but back then, uh, 1972, uh, let, let's say I, had, uh, I was a recruit for NYPD. and said, uh, wait a minute, six shot, 38s, and the bad guys can have 14 shot, nine millimeters. Uh, we don't even get hollow point bullets. Uh, we're limited to 38 special, what's going on here? I would have been one of at that time, 26,000 sworn on that department today since they absorbed uh, Housing Authority and uh, Transit Authority. It's up to 36,000 cops. And I would have been told, who the fuck are you? The first in the institutional history of the largest and the finest law enforcement agency in the history of the planet. Earth. But funny thing about that, I was also writing for the police professional journals. And if you yeah. could go to that same lieutenant in charge of firearms training and say, Lieutenant, I've been assigned to do an article on your firearms training program. And they realize their peers in big city law enforcement training and federal law enforcement training are going to see it. Then it's all of a sudden, well, uh, why don't you come down, spend the day, we'll talk. And we'll, here's the real reason we had to do this. Here's the real reason we can't do this other. And it, it got you the inside view. And what I learned real early, listen to the instructors, listen to the, the administration, talk to the union, or if they don't have a union, talk to the fraternal organization, talk to the guys who are down there where the rubber meets the road. And between all of those together, you start getting a damn good idea of how well this equipment or that training protocol is actually working where it needs to work. And it's not. Uh, The advantage I had, I was a part-time cop. My entire police time was part-time. That gave me the free time plus the entree from the magazines to travel around the country, visit with different departments, visit with the, the instructors, particularly the people who are on the cutting edge, the ones who are actually researching and collating what was happening in their departments and correlating that with how the training worked and adjusting the training accordingly to reality. Uh, there was a period when I was writing for Police Product News, which later became Police Magazine, uh, doing the officer survival call. And during that period, I was literally able to take a course a month someplace, whether it was Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, a visit to LAPD Academy or something in between. And that gave me the opportunity to gather up training in three or four careers. I wouldn't have been able to get. You well know the average police firearms instructor today has to practically beg on his knees to get one away from the department course a year to bring back to his people. So basically that was the approach I always took. And I always saw myself as a funnel. Okay, Get to places most of the other guys aren't going to be able to get to. Gather as much as I can, get it to them. And as much as possible, filter out the bullshit and make sure they're getting the good stuff.
0: Outstanding. Uh, that brings up one point and then several questions. I guess the one point that I would kind of like to address would be what you hit on there, that if you had walked into the so like an agency like NYPD as a rookie and said, hey, the, all this training, this isn't the latest cutting edge. This is what we need to be doing. You would have been shot down. And I see that a lot from people who, I guess, are hobbyists or enthusiasts, and they decide, well, I'm going to go try to do this cop thing, and they walk in, probably better trained than what the academy staff is, and they want to come in, and they bring all this enthusiasm, and they start asking, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, what you're showing us is an outdated technique, this is a new technique that works better, and they just get shot down, and it creates such a... A source of friction, and they never get get a chance to actually influence anything.
1: I'll tell you, one of my early mentors was Frank McGee. Now, Lieutenant McGee had taken over the firearms training unit at City Island NYPD in 1970. He completely revamped that. with one-hand bullseye and all of that quarter 20th century FBI thing, and immediately got the what he called the turret stance, essentially two-handed isosceles, from the beginning emphasized the use of the sights. And he literally brought that department from a ratio of 50-50 gunfight wins to something on the order of winning 11 out of 12 gunfights. One of the points that he told me taught me and I'm afraid it's still true today. When you other department instructor on in this, you, you've got to pick your battles. Okay? You, you've got to fight battles you can win. And he knew damn well that they needed hollow point ammunition, that it would work far better than what they had. He knew that if he made Magnums or 45s an option, that out of 24,000, 26,000 guys at that time, there'd be a whole lot of failures to qualify It would be seen as a failure of the unit, and he'd be replaced by somebody who brought him back to 1946 FBI level training. What Frank did was knowing that it would be politically incorrect at that time to push for the hollow points. Remember, this is a department that even after Frank had gone, they didn't go to hollow point ammunition until like 1998, 1999. Uh, They had one commissioner who said, I ain't going to be the commissioner that gives dumb, dumb bullets to NYPD officers. So he focused instead very much on tactics. Um, He was really the first big city PD to give scenario based training. He was putting fire hydrants, telephone poles, uh, decommissioned automobiles out there on the range. So the guys could get used to working with the cover that they would have in the field. And. I think all of us can learn from that. If if we bang our heads against the wall uh, trying to get something that within the political climate of the department today, you're not going to get, you're going to end up walking foot patrol in the sanitary landfill on midnight shift. And some pogue that dances on the puppet strings is going to replace you as the survival instructor. So lesson one, pick your battles, fight what you can win, and do the best you can for your guys and gals. Yeah, and,
0: you know, the other thing with that is that even if you get the brass to be supportive, a lot of your coworkers are just aren't along on, on for the ride. They're going to come do the bare minimum to get through, and they're not going to share the same passion and zeal for it that the instructor may have.
1: Well, uh, I quote McGee again. Uh, he told me, uh, he said, Mass, these people will break your heart. They don't think about it like you do. Most of them would rather have a nice pocket pen than a custom Smith and Watson. And there was truth in that. Um, one thing I found, I was teaching in northern New England and small departments. And a whole lot of guys would, you know, would say, well, okay, this thing you're telling us about that happened in LAPD, that thing that happened in Detroit or New York. That doesn't happen up here. And I told them well, it didn't happen there until it did. Uh, we're the most mobile society in america you know your exposure rate is less in a smaller less populated lower crime community but what you've also got to remember is look i've, I've been on the street in new york when a 1013 went out uh, officer in trouble major trouble everything gets dropped cops flood to that scene like a tarzan movie with the, you know he goes ah, 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 and you see all the elephants and the lions come charging to assist them and stuff that's what it looks like on the streets of New York with a ten thirteen. Uh, you are going to have backup literally in seconds, at least in the 1970s, 1980s. When you are a rural cop, whether it's rural Georgia, rural New Hampshire, or rural anyplace else, you may be 15 minutes or more from the nearest backup. And you're, whatever you are going to do, you're going to do alone with what you have with you. And you've got to let them know, past is prologue. Uh, 1933, uh, Zangara opens fire in Miami trying to shoot uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt and mortally wounds uh, Chicago Mayor Anton Cermak who's with him in the open-top limousine. And it was as if Secret Service said, well, that'll never happen again. And almost exactly 30 years later in an open-top limousine in Dallas, Texas, we knew what happened, and they finally learned the lesson. And nobody's... Nobody. I don't think anybody in Dallas said, "Well, this isn't Miami; it's never going to happen here." But I think the history of it is: "Copper armed citizen." If it happened to anyone else, it absolutely can happen to you. Yeah. All right. You can conceive it happening. That Mm -hmm. the perpetrator can conceive it happening.
0: Yeah, and nowadays we're so instantly connected to everything happening around the world. You know, used to be we had to wait till the wire services picked it up and carried it the next day. Or, you know, they could get footage to a network affiliate. Well, now everybody just picks up their cell phone and can just send it right out. And it's almost like an event didn't happen if there's not cell phone video of it. And we're freezing up again. Moss, are you there? Yeah,
1: and one, one of the things that uh, Gail, we should be. Yeah, I am here. All
0: right. Okay. Uh, do we need tech support? Or can you hear me? <laughs> you, yeah, I've got you back now.
1: Okay.
0: Uh, what I was saying was there, you know, now everything, it's like if there's not cell phone video, the incident didn't happen or body cam video. It's, you know, it, it's just. Uh-huh. Everything is right there immediately for us all to see it, almost as an event's happening live. And that's so different than what it was just 10, 15 years ago.
1: And you know, one thing we're seeing today is again the the forgetting history. It's like, well, it's past, therefore it's irrelevant. Uh, I know Tom Gibbons and I have discussed how disappointed we were to see a small turnout when Call. And presentation, which I believe you've seen. Uh, but it's like the Europeans have a uh, care where they're going. Uh, I've seen a lot of that. A few years ago, I was in Albuquerque, and the uh, resident firearms instructor there invited me in to give a talk on the, uh, the FBI incident in April 11, 1986, in Miami because he knew I had debriefed some of the survivors and had written about it. And I was happy to do that. The amazing thing was in in the 2000s, so many of the agents in that agency watching that were unaware that that incident had happened, that seminal incident that had changed not only their training profoundly, but had a profound impact on law enforcement training nationwide, even worldwide. if we don't know where we've been, we're not entirely sure where we're going. And I certainly appreciate your emphasis and John Hearns and Tom Gibbons and others in making sure that today's instructors learn from the past and hopes that the mistakes of the past will no longer be made.
0: Uh, we buffered a little bit at the very beginning of that thing. He was talking about Carl Wren's historical handgun program, uh, which is called uh, KR training go look up information there and see where Carl's going to be presenting that around the country this year and make an effort to go see it. Um, It
1: really shows you how far we've come.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, Earlier you said that when you became an instructor for your agency, that you got that in part because you'd already published articles and that you were, quote, the gun writer. Well, how did you get into writing articles? (laughs)
1: Like a lot of other people, uh, I read an article that pissed me off uh, in Gunsport magazine, uh, probably 1970. And I wrote a letter to the editor, Ken Warner, who we just lost a couple of years ago, and said, This guy is full of blah, 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 blah. blah. And he wrote back and said, Well, if you think you're going to write better, why don't you write an article for me? I said, Well, by God, I will. And I did. And you talk to guys who write in that specific field, it's amazing how often something just like that gets them started. But uh, I enjoyed, wait a minute, let me get this straight. Uh, I write about something that interests me and you give me money for it? This, this is good. I can live with it. And uh, I don't know, Evan Marshall, Dave Spalding, a whole lot of us who wrote in the officer survival field started out pretty much just like that.
0: All right. Uh, you know you mentioned you wrote a letter to the editor and i think that's one of the things that's different in that era and the current era is that now anybody can just flip it up. i'm sitting in my kitchen broadcasting to the world anybody can start an instagram account or a youtube page where back then you had to get to an editorial filter
1: and yeah basically the the editor was the gatekeeper
0: yeah, we have a lot of instant self-proclaimed experts in the, in the field now.
1: We, we have more genuine experts than we had before, but we also have more bullshit experts. And it's up to the viewer to be able to sort. There you go.
0: The, the, uh, the consumer has to make some sort of value judgment there and research the person that they're receiving information from.
1: Not, not only the person, but the topic. Don't take any one person's top word on it, particularly if if you're talking one of the more polarized areas, uh, whether whether we're talking police brutality, police misconduct. My pet peeves is people talking about police reform. Uh, those folks would have done a whole lot better if they had said improved police training, which you The very word we've seen is an insult and a slap in the They tell us we should have uh, de-escalation training. Most experienced street cops have learned enough on their own that they could teach an effective de-escalation course. And a whole lot of the people demanding police de-escalation do not realize de-escalation works both ways. Well, just reason with them. Reason only works with the reasonable. They don't call the cops until something unreasonable is happening. Do the math, folks. And that, that's why there's a whole lot of, you know, rainbows and moonbeams uh, coming into this that really just, just aren't going to work in the field.
0: Yeah, they, they add like it's a tool on our belt that we can just pull out and deploy. It's going to instantly stop. Sir, I'm de-escalating you. Oh, well, in that case, I'll calm down. You know, that's, that's just not how it works. And, you know, it's just unfathomable that people have that mindset that they just, you know, the, the other side gets a choice too. And I'm not trying to claim that cops don't cause problems, that we don't, sometimes we escalate the situation instead of de escalating it. And because I know that's just not the truth. She, I've had bad days and bad moments and not handled scenes the way i would have preferred to handle them but you know you can't de-escalate someone that's not willing to be de-escalated yeah just the other side just doesn't agree with that or doesn't understand it because they don't want to um you mentioned that you went to the smith smith and wesson academy and that's a training venue that has not been discussed previously on the show so what information can you provide about it
1: Well, you mentioned where uh, a lot of the folks uh, on the West Coast focused, uh, kind of gunsight centric, and on the East Coast, uh, a lot with John Shaw. In the Northeast, I remember this is before Sig Sauer Academy was formed. Uh, Smith and Western Academy was absolutely a training mecca. Uh, their first uh, instructor was kind of a mentor of mine. Uh, Smith was, he had been the uh, the lead instructor for F. FBI in New York, and he was the first uh, uh, director of Smith & Wesson Academy, and Charlie Smith was a very pragmatic guy. He would show us in the instructor school, okay, here's why we did the FBI crouch, here's why we did the step to the side, but he also allowed us to find out for ourselves that, you know, bringing the gun up to line of sight didn't take any longer, Got the hit faster. They got in the second hand on the gun. Didn't take that much longer. The way Cooper was, so looking for new things to test what would work and what wouldn't. All right. We
0: froze. And I
1: I learned a great deal from him. And Smith and Wesson Academy uh, was a real center for the Northeast.
0: We froze up a little bit during that. Uh, we froze up a little bit. You were talking uh, about Mr. Smith and that he was teaching that bringing the gun to eye level right. and comparing that to the crouch. Could you go back over that again?
1: Yeah. Charlie Smith, uh, with his own FBI background, taught us the FBI crouch and also the rationale behind it. But he was not slavish to it. He, uh, his teaching style was to let us try different ways and find out for ourselves. That you can get the gun up to the line of sight just as fast as you can get on that stylized crouch, but you're going to get a whole lot better hits. Uh, that visually indexing the weapon, particularly on a, a moving target or a, a small target, uh, was going to have a whole lot better outcome for you. Uh, he emphasized two handed shooting. Uh, he was an early advocate of the semi automatic pistol for police service back in the revolver days. And you, you have been talking about, you know, different uh, schools being kind of centers of training for different regions. In the northeast where I was, nothing & an Academy was certainly that. And FBI, course, of course, they, uh, you know, they, they were doing constructive classes around the country. And in all the areas, including the northeast, uh, the FBI had a very strong influence.
0: Okay. Uh, the other part of your intro that piqued my interest was that I think we're buffering again. I'm getting some background noise. Uh, you mentioned that you got to travel around the country, taking so many classes and seeing the cutting edge. Who are some people that you ran across during those travels that nobody knows about because they weren't publishing articles?
1: One of them, certainly Bill Gross. Uh, he's no longer with us. Uh, do a Google search: G R O C E. Uh, Bill, for many years, was head of firearms and tactics training for a pot at the Ohio Peace Officer Training Academy in uh, London, Ohio. He was very much a gun sight guy and studied under Cooper, but he also was very much a, a researcher, and particularly there in his home state of Ohio, uh, he. He delved as deeply as he could into virtually every police officer involved shooting that took place there. Uh, He was a pioneer in terms of teaching tactics and movement. Uh, He was another early advocate of the semi-automatic service pistol during the revolver days. He taught, uh, he came up with innovative techniques. Uh, One that I still teach is the Peck Vest technique with a shotgun. Now, you can remember back in the day when our Standard police long gun was the 12 gauge, and they would teach you to shoot at like, you know, like a trap shooter shooting mouse fart trap loads or something. Wouldn't teach you to get your body weight, and know it, it kicked people around. Uh, you'd see them leaving the range with, you know, bruises under their cheeks, the the shoulder black and blue down here. You knew damn well half of them. The last thing they'd reach for would be the shotgun, no matter how badly they needed. He had noticed when the soft body armor came out, it started becoming standard, that going trying to obscure the shoulder pocket with the Kevlar, and the butt would tend to skid off and go into the brachial plexus. He came up with pivot the hips, extend the arm, and bring the gun butt onto the vest itself, right above the nipple. female officer was amazing after the first couple of shots you'd see your your smallest most delicately built officer with this great big grin i can finally control this damn gun and he bill uh because he was i asked him why he didn't teach around the country and he said look i've got all i can do to teach here my job i'm an ohio cop my job is teaching ohio cops But he made a part of literally a a little Athens in in the heartland of quality police tactical training, and his legacy lives on. A lot of the the very famous uh, instructors you see coming out of Ohio, uh, Dave Spalding, uh, Greg Elifritz, and guys like that. Um,
0: As you were explaining the technique, we buffered and froze up again. So, could you give a quick rundown on the the pictorial technique again to save me from getting eighty-seven emails? On oh,
1: sure, The the pack best sure, the pack best technique, Bill Gross at Ohio Peace Officer Training Academy. When he noticed the body armor was covering the shoulder pocket area, which is one of the reasons, you know, if you're an old guy, they tell you to bring your arm up like this when you're running the <laughs> shotgun, because it defined a cleft between the deltoid and the pectoralis to keep the shot the shotgun's recoil from skidding off down into the break breaker. Well, when you did that with the body armor, that pocket was obscured, and it would, after the first shot or two, it would, what, Well, you'd hit a guy in the arm to make him drop the shotgun, right? He figured out if you pivoted the hips and square the chest, pull the gun butt right down in line with the nipple above the breast, particularly in a female officer, and over the top of the shotgun, or vulture it down like this and get a perfect sight picture. And with your body weight going forward into the gun, you had much better control and rapid fire and that painful impact. And brief digression, uh, the recoil of a seven, seven and a half pound police shotgun with a full power rifled slug or full power butt is almost exactly the same recoil force as a 375 H&H Magnum out of a 10 pound elephant rifle. So we were trying to teach cops to use trap shooter techniques while rapid firing the equivalent of an elephant gun. And that's what made so damn many of them incompetent with it, afraid of it, and likely to leave it in the patrol car when they desperately needed it. The other thing Bill did with that technique, if you're, if you're my opponent, as I've laid to come up in a conventional uh, technique, I've opened this area of the body armor. It's like I took the vest and said, yo, free shot. This squared up the vest and maximized the Kevlar's protection from the angle of the identified threat. And that was the sort of thing that Gross came up with. He was a seasoned SWAT cop. He understood the job, and he looked at everything three-dimensionally, and it's what made him one of the all-time great police instructors. And I I hope we picked up when we discussed earlier how many of the top instructors today come out of Ohio, and Bill Gross's legacy at Abada is, I think, part of the reason for that.
0: Outstanding. Outstanding. Uh, Any other names that you would like to bring up?
1: Certainly Ray Chap, uh, Ray and uh, Jeff Cooper basically came up together. Ray didn't write much. He might've written a couple of articles in his life, uh, but Ray was the first world champion of the combat pistol. Uh, he was one of the original uh, Jeff Cooper uh, combat masters. And he opened his school Chapman Academy uh, within a few months of Jeff Cooper opening Gunsight in called Arizona. Uh, Chapman Academy was in Columbia, Missouri, about equidistant, uh, uh, probably about two hours out of uh, St. Louis. And a lot of the Midwestern folks went there. I know LAPD did as well. Now, LAPD sent uh, Mudgett and Helms uh, to Gunsight, and they brought back a lot of Gunsight doctrine that literally revamped LAPD training. Uh-huh. But those, both guys also went to Chapman Academy. And hell, I saw both of them there. And Ray had a a broad influence. Um, Of all the masters I've been privileged to train under, uh, I think I learned more from Ray than any two of the others. Uh, If if you listened to him and and did what he showed you to do, he would be your one-on-one coach. And remember, this is the guy who in 1975 won the first world championship of the combat pistol. Now, Chapman every year would have his police match and that almost every stage would be based on some gunfight that he was able to document and on the many bays that that he had there, uh, including shooting from moving vehicles, uh, he was able to recreate a whole lot of stuff. Now, Chapman had been a cop uh, in his young years, I believe in Los Alamitos, but most of his career, he was an engineer. And what I think made him such a great shooting coach and such a pioneer in techniques was he took an engineer's mindset to, to looking at something. Uh, his, uh, people talk about modified weaver stances, for example. And, you know, everybody and his brother had their own modified weaver, but Chapman's was the one that caught on. Uh, Ray emphasized shooting from strength. He knew a lot of people with both elbows bent in the what I call the classic Weaver of Jack Weaver and promulgated originally by Colonel Cooper. Uh, both elbows were bent with an isometric push and pull. Chapman for, uh, always emphasized a hard crush grip and in his early days, thumb curled down for maximum hand strength on the gun, locked the arm out rigid and pulled the arm in tight with a bent forward arm. So it wasn't isometric tension anymore, it was dynamic tension. But for a whole lot of folks, it worked better. Uh, for police, it worked better yet, because if I can angle go right to the camera here, in the classic weaver, you've got to blade your body at least to some degree. And we've had the discussion about the, the angle of the latissimus dorsi area and all that that becomes exposed with the body armor. With Chapman's, as you extend the arm, the chest squares up more. And I always felt if you were wearing body armor and you wanted a weaker stance, Chapman's was the one you wanted. Again, it maximized the the angle of the vest protection from the the angle of the incoming threat, the identified threat. Chapman himself picked up on that, and he taught the isosceles stance with both arms locked in chest Square. He called it the police stance. And I can say that with some authority because I saw him teach it many times. Uh, I became an adjunct instructor for several years at Chapman Academy in the 80s. And Ray and I, uh, for several years in the 80s, went around the country doing the advanced officer survival courses for Police Marksmen Association. So Chapman definitely was uh, was a very powerful influence among the people who went out and looked for a cutting edge training. He was on me and he was on many, many more from LAPD. East.
0: Excellent. Uh, Any other names?
1: Well, uh, John Farnham, uh, certainly he was the people question whether he was the first itinerant instructor. Uh, Jeff Cooper would, you know, fly out of the country or go somewhere to do a class for someone who asked him. But he was what what Jeff did in creating gun sight. Was somewhat different from what Farnham did. Jeff, in creating Gunsight, created the first fixed facility that was like a police academy, only in many ways better because of the multiple bays, the, uh, among the first of the, the shoot houses, and all that. And if you look at the history of it, Jeff Cooper was the first to teach armed citizens how to actually fight with a weapon since the size of his arms, the, the schools of arms that, you know, rich young Southern gentlemen went to in, in New Orleans before the Civil War. Now, again, he and Chapman were uh, working contemporaries and the best of friends between the two of them. And this, the schools opened within months of each other. But uh, uh, what John Farnham did Constantly kept looking, kept changing when he found something that that worked better for himself and for most of his students. And he was the first of us to become a full-time itinerant instructor. That is, instead of bringing 20 folks to you, it's a whole lot easier for one of you to go to to 20 or more of them. And uh, he really was the one who pioneered that. And all of us today who make our living traveling around the country teaching should probably light a candle to, uh, to John Farnham for that while he's alive to appreciate it because he's, he's one of the few living humans even older than me
0: <laughs> he, he literally uh will keep doing this until we have to carry him off i believe
1: Do that uh one point tom gibbons has been making is that none of us are any younger uh ken hackathorn actually has retired uh dave spalding is looks like he's about to or sounds like he's about to Get some of these folks while they're still around. Hell, come, come to TAPCON. You guys watching this, guys and gals, if you have not been to the Ranchmaster Tactical Conference, there is no better dollar value. It's, uh, it's like a Whitman sampler of some of the most veteran instructors around the country teaching a smorgasbord of everything from adult learning theory to hand-to-hand to the gun, to dissecting shooting cases, to the legal side of it, courtroom survival. And it's uh, three awesome days. I I make a point of going every year. And I'm always like a shark in a feeding frenzy, trying to grab up as much people's stuff as I possibly can.
0: Uh, If I could digress to tell a personal anecdote here for a second, the first year that I ever taught at TACCOM, I was the lead guy for a class. Uh, uh, one of my favorite classroom moments is, is I was presenting my police citizen contacts class, and there was a gentleman over on the left-hand side of the room, and I forget what it was that I said, and he he raised his hand. He said, well, Masada, you would say, and he went on to say whatever it was he said, and I said, really? Well, he's sitting back over here in the second row. Let's see if that's what, what he would really say. And, uh, I was very uh, humbled by the fact that you were in the class, so thank you for that, sir.
1: Well, I enjoyed your class. You were an excellent instructor, Lee.
0: Well, thank you. Thank
1: if, you. If you think the kid is cool with headphones on, folks, wait till you see him live.
0: <laughs> well, I'm trying. I'm trying. Um, you mentioned a couple of guys that, you know, earlier we were speaking, that there were early advocates of semi-automatics instead of revolvers. Other than the obvious answer of capacity, what were the reasons for that?
1: A lot of it was hit potential. And I think that was that was probably the the big thing. Uh, what were, particularly on the off-duty guns, you you had a a one-pound Smith and Wesson airweight or Cobra, or a, a barely over two-pound Smith and P38, and you were rapidly putting 12, 14 pounds of pressure through a long stroke for every shot. And the guns we had at the time, the most popular in the early days, was, of course, the 1911-45. But the guns that really made the auto viable in America and made liability-conscious chiefs comfortable with it were the double-actions, starting with the lesson, like the Model 39. And what you saw there was a quantum leap. Uh, For several years, I was feature editor for Illinois Trooper magazine. Uh, which was the publication of Troopers Lodge 41, the, uh, the fraternal organization that represented the, at that time, about 1,700 Illinois troopers. That gave me carte blanche to uh, talk with the, the guys at the Ordnance Unit in Springfield. And I remember, Illinois State Police was the first major department in the country to go to the semi auto service pistol as standard issue uh, circa 1967. Now, I got to debrief the, uh, the guy who made that happen, uh, then Ordnance Sergeant uh, Louis Seaman. And what a lot of people miss was firepower was not the real reason they went to that gun. Uh, At the time, the officers carried uh, four to six-inch 38s. They had the choice of Bolter Smith & Wesson, and they could carry a 357 if they wanted to. But they were all armed off-duty, usually with the two-inch 38 and the qualification scores were absolutely dismal with the small frame two inch thirty eights. What Louis was looking for was a single issue gun that could be carried on and off duty, could be carried uniform or plain clothes, and was shootable. And he wound up with the Smith & Wesson Model 39 for that reason. Now I did a, in 1977, uh, I did a survey of the Troopers uh, through the magazine. And one thing we found was a significant number of them wanted to go back to revolvers because they didn't trust semi-automists. At the same time, I also had access in Carb Blanche to the files they had at the Ordnance Unit at Springfield. I was able to identify in that 10-year period 13 troopers who were alive that almost certainly would have been killed if they'd been in the same situation with six-shot, 38 revolvers. Now, four of those were firepower. It went past six shots. The eight shots in the gun was enough in two of those cases to finish the fight there before it went to slide line and finished satisfactorily. And in the other, one of the troopers reloaded, continued firing. The guy had taken 13 hits before he finally stopped shooting at the troopers. But that was four out of thirteen. We had a couple who had survived because they had been taught, remember the Model 39 had a magazine, Disconnector Safety. And they had been taught if you're in a fight over the gun and you think the gun's slipping out of your hand, press that button. And if the other guy gets hold of it, it's going to kill the gun. In two cases, that was exactly what happened and it did save their lives. The single biggest life-saving thing was they had at that time the option of carrying on safe or off safe. Again and again, we saw the syndrome. The guy, bad guy gets the gun away from the officer, tries to shoot him, can't because it's unsafe. And by the time he's figured out how to make it work, the trooper has rectified the situation, or in one case, a brother officer shot and killed the guy who was trying to kill the first trooper. The other thing we noticed on it that really jumped out at me, and that's what we started talking about, was the hit potential factor. Um, uh, Sebastian Ulrich and Bob Capelli, who was head of the ordinance unit at the time I was doing the research, told me their hit ratio prior to going to the semi-auto had been about 25%. And that was pretty much standard. During that period, Police Foundation determined nationwide about a seventy, about a 25% hit ratio. Four shots fired for one to hit the bad guy anywhere. They went up to 67-70% hit ratio with the semi-autos and they felt a lot of it was the the shorter easier trigger after they got past the first shot was less likely to divert the muscle uh, also certainly less recoil than a 357 or a 38 plus a revolver and the more ergonomic be too young to remember but you know if you had any choice in the matter you never left the The factory grips on your revolver. You got Pack Myers. You got hoax You got at least a grip adapter. You got something. That Model Thirty Nine came out of the box, fitting most hands extremely well and pointing very well. So hit potential, I thought, was the the single greatest factor. Secondarily, the proprietary nature of the user factor, which unfortunately, in the time of Kiss principle, keep it simple, stupid has, in my opinion, been lost by altogether too much of the law enforcement fraternity. And finally, after that, the firepower element, both the, the higher in gun capacity and the more rapid reloads.
0: Excellent. Now, anecdotally, I have been told that, you know, one of the reasons for the double action, you know, a traditional double action pistol having the double action pull on the first shot. Single action on the second or subsequent shots was fear of negligent discharges by going to the, the four pound trigger right off the bat. But I've been told also that there were more negligent discharges when going back to the holster than there were on the initial trigger press. Can you confirm or refute that?
1: There were a lot of departments that, if, if the, guy, the guy was under stress, had to fire in the line of duty. So there's gonna be some degree of stress, even if it's just shooting a dog or something. Mm-hmm. And the ones who did not regularly practice with the gun, if they forgot to on safe and left the finger on the trigger, by then <clears throat> virtually all the holsters were covering the trigger guards. Pistol goes in a holster, finger stops, fingers on trigger, gun keeps going and kaboom. So yeah, that was a thing.
0: Uh, You started teaching private citizens, you said, in 81? 81. 81. And you were in charge of your own agency's program in the 70s. Is that correct?
1: Uh, 70s, 80s, 90s, and uh, on the firearm side, yeah, and of course, 2000s. I did that uh, three departments over the years, 40-some years total. All
0: right. How did you decide what to put in your curriculum? And when you've made changes in your curriculum, how did you decide to make those changes?
1: Uh, Police or civilian? Both. Well, first, uh, actually common to both of them. First, let them know when they can use it, then show them how to use it. Uh, Safety first, whether or not you're ever going to get into a gunfight, you're going to be handling that goddamn thing for the rest of your life. You're going to be loading it, unloading it, taking it off, putting it back on. Sometimes in the dark, sometimes under stress, sometimes exhausted, you've got to from the ground up make make safety the non-negotiable foundation. Then go from there, essentially on the civilian side of it, the, the thing that had struck me was that you there were by the time I got to know what, uh, you know Jeff Cooper in 76 started gunsight and all that. there were places you could go and learn how to shoot but when to shoot was something they left left up to you. Uh, one famous school that we may name less, the instructor was famous for saying in the introductory lecture, if you want to know when to shoot someone, ask a lawyer, we're here to show you how to win a gunfight. And that was the focus for the rest of the week. And we saw a whole lot of folks getting in trouble over that. Um, so on the civilian side, I think what what was different with the training we offered compared to others was I made our curriculum a major in when and a minor in how. I'd like to think a strong minor, but first, when can you use it? Second, okay, here's the most efficient way we found to get shots into something the size of a heart or a brain at such and such distance at such and such speed. Uh, We emphasized accuracy first, then speed.
0: You know, it's funny you said that to ask a lawyer and I, I don't think that the general public understands that lawyers are just as much specialized as doctors are. You know, I'm, I'm not going to go ask a podiatrist questions about cancer you know, or, or to treat a cancer if I were to have that or to do a heart surgery or something along those lines. You know, your real estate lawyer buddy is not the guy to be asking questions on self-defense and self-defense law. And that's really such a big specialty, especially from the affirmative defense side, because most defense attorneys are dealing with, you know, not affirmative defense. They're dealing with, you know, the other side of that usually dealing with a guilty client. Um, not all the time, not all the time, but, uh, they're coming from that perspective versus, no, 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 what my client did was legally justified, and here's why. And that's just such a completely different point of view to approach the subject from than trying to prove your client didn't do it.
1: Well, you're, you're right on that. Um, over the years, I've dealt with a great many attorneys. Uh, usually, at least once a year, I'll do a CLE course, Continuing Legal Education, Uh, for practicing attorneys on the topic of defending the self-defense case. Now, first, your self-defense case, in many ways, in terms of strategy, is 180 degrees off the usual guilt mitigation that you get with your typical guilty client. Now, two things to bear in mind on going to a law school, or or an attorney, rather, for deadly force training. Virtually every attorney I interact with, I ask, how many in three years of law school, how much time did you get focused on self defense law, dynamics of violent encounters, things like that? The answers range from zero to the average is probably, mm, I think, maybe three hours. <laughs> well, even your criminal defense lawyer, if he is in a flourishing practice, he's defending primarily guilty people. By and large, the system does work. And most of the people fed into the machine were there for a probable cause. And uh, the, the, somebody in the prosecutor's office figured we've done enough on them to convince the jury beyond a reasonable doubt. I've talked to defense lawyers who retired. person overcharged, maybe, but not roughly. Uh, One guy I know who is approaching now 40 years of criminal defense practice told me about one out of 100 of his clients are truly innocent of what they're charged with. So when you're dealing with a defense lawyer, you're dealing with largely a guilty man's lawyer. Uh, All of us default to our primary experience. Our most common experiences are the, the things we've been most frequently exposed to. Yeah, what I've found is if a guilty man's lawyer gives you a guilty man's defense, you are very likely to end up with a guilty man's verdict.
0: Yeah, it, the system has, seems to me like it's skewed so much towards the plea bargain, you know, plea bargain efforts than justice efforts. What, what are the natural statistics right now? What 3%, 1% to 3% of, of arrests ever actually make it to a courtroom for like a trial?
1: not on top of that particular figure. Uh, my, my personal gut feeling over the years, uh, I mean, everything from arresting officer to police prosecutor in the New Hampshire system, uh, to most often expert witness, I'd say about 97% of the people who are criminally charged are in fact, guilty, or at least guilty of some lesser included offense. So, this is why you get very few attorneys who have a whole lot of experience defending the truly innocent, wrongfully accused person. Uh, you most definitely want a specialist in the field. No, there's there's nowhere that the, the only attorney who ever made a living only defending truly innocent people was Perry Mason, and he was fictional. Okay. Yeah. Um, what you will find is if you talk to, uh, if, if you're looking, for an attorney in your area, I would go to the police union or police fraternal organization, uh, your county sheriffs or, or the nearest big city, and ask them, what attorney do you guys have on retainer for one of your officers if one of your officers is criminally charged in the wake of a shooting? Now, what you'll have there is an attorney who has done a whole lot of justifiable shooting cases. And Private citizens say, oh, well, that's a cop lawyer. That's got nothing to do with me. The hell it is. The the charges are very much the same. The dynamics of the shooting, whether it's line of duty, self-defense, or on citizen defending himself is much the same. And what you need here is someone who understands dynamics of violent encounters, knows how to get them across to a jury, knows how to uh, reconstruct a shooting scene, and get that established for the triers of the facts. And it doesn't much matter. Uh, whether you were carrying on a piece of tin or a piece of celluloid. It doesn't matter whether it was a badge or a carry permit. In some areas, uh, California, for example, there are so many bullshit unmeritorious lawsuits against cops that there are whole firms that do nothing but police police, uh, plaintiff practice. There are therefore firms that do nothing but police defense practice. And some of them, as a matter of policy, will only speak for costs. But those who are in that specialty will know criminal defense lawyers who know what they know who will take a civilian client, and they may be able to refer you to the person you'd want there. Uh, another option, and I'm going to throw in a free plug here for an organization I belong to, uh, Armed Citizens Legal Defense Network. Now, Lee, you and I both know Marty Hayes, who founded that. And literally, founded the whole post self-defense legal support industry. Um, ACLDN has about twenty-five, uh, at least twenty-five cases now already done with satisfactory outcomes, and none with negative outcomes, as, as far as I know. They have referrals for their members, and if you, we, we've got enough of a support group on the advisory board between Dennis Tuller. Uh, Tom Gibbons, uh, John Farnham, uh, myself, Marty Hayes, Vincent Schutt, that wherever you are, we can find
0: somebody
1: within a few days who can you know, handle a case like that in striking distance of your area to make it feasible and logistically sound to do so. Uh, we can't do it for 1,000 people a year just in case. Uh, we can do it for, for one of ours who gets in trouble. But basically, you want a, you're want you absolutely right, Lee. You want a specialist for this, not a generalist. You my Cousin Benny was a great movie. I think it should be shown in law school. It is not the role model for what you want for your defense team.
0: Speaking of which, My Cousin Benny was partially filmed in my hometown. And I have dined in the restaurant where they got the, the, uh, the breakfast, lunch, and dinner menu. Uh, I will say that the menu was more actual complex than that. But I have eaten there.
1: But how did they cook their grits? Uh,
0: the correct way. Good to know. There you go. The correct way. Um, what trends have you seen come and go over the years, and that have circled back around? And which ones are you glad that you've seen are gone? And and just what can you tell? Because everybody acts like every new technique that comes out, oh, this is this is the new thing. Well, yeah, they were doing it in seventy-five, so it's not new.
1: Well, one of course is the point shooting thing. And that comes up not just every generation, but a few times per generation. And a, a whole lot of that is people talking past each other uh, on the terminology. Uh, the late Dave Arnold was the first to point out that one man's point shooting is another man's aimed fire. Uh, we have to understand that there's going to be a continuum based on, on distance, target difficulty, and expedience. Uh, If if you've been fortunate enough to train with Craig Douglas and you are entangled in a fight with a guy trying to keep you from shooting him, Craig's techniques will let you put that guy on the ground and you will not be taking a sight picture at all, but you'll be getting it done. Uh, The farther the, the distance increases, and particularly the more movement there is on either side, the more it demands a visual index of the weapon. So I think if we're going to talk point shooting versus aimed fire, the first thing we have to do is distinguish what each of us is talking about when we use those words. So when I say point shooting, I'm talking a body position uh, of it, a retention position when we're we're in tight clothes, Uh, the old FBI crouch, uh, the Bill Jordan hip shooting technique, where body position indices okay what's indexing the gun on the target is your body and the cruel thing with that is you can make it work in the training environment on a fixed target you just analyze okay here are the coordinates i just step a little bit this way i mean this way okay ready coach bam 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 and wow i'm a fantastic point shooter. the shit hits the fan the target's moving you're moving all those coordinates break and you are back to blind man with a gun you cannot see where the gun is pointing, and there are law schools where blind man with a gun is the exemplar of recklessness. I've seen enough cases over the years where point shooting hit the wrong person and caused hideous tragedies that beyond arm's reach, uh, I want to be able to see my gun on target. Now, to fire. A lot of people tell you, well, you can't get that perfect front sight and rear sight, and focus on the front sight, and if there's time, focus on the very top edge of the front sight. That is the most precise form of aimed fire, at least with an iron sight weapon. But as far as I'm concerned, if I can see the gun's orientation on the target, if uh, looking here at the screen right now at the image of of Lee Weems, I'm looking over it, I can see what I'm shooting at, I can also see exactly where that, that weapon is aimed, and th- I would consider that aimed fire, it's coarsely aimed, it's crudely aimed, but if my eyes can tell me the gun is on target, I would consider that effective point shooting. Uh, that's why the, the point shooting of Rex Applegate, uh, which came right to eye level, carried on today by Luke Yoto, I love it, guys like that, actually works. You can see the gun on target. Now, there was one guy who's no longer with us, and he's not here to defend himself, so uh, I'm not going to use his name. We said, only point shooting will save your life. Only a fool would attempt to aim in a gunfight. And the key to point shooting is the elbow into the ribcage. And I have trained with Rex Applegate. I know. Well, hell, I knew Rex Applegate. And one day I asked Rex, I said... What about so-and-so? And he said, oh, my God, that asshole. So basically, I said, Rex, could you do me a favor? I've got a camera with me. Could you show me, show my camera, Rex Applegate point shooting? He said, of course. But he wasn't carrying that day. Uh, we went to someplace where we wouldn't frighten the horses. I cleared out my Beretta. And the picture appears in uh, my book. Uh, gun Digest book of combat hand gunnery and basically what you can see is Rex has brought the gun up, and the gun is essentially if you put a uh, if you put a ruler over the picture, the ruler goes straight from the pupil of his eye to the front sight. I said Rex, you can see that those sights, right? He said, yes, of course. I'm simply not looking for them. I said, you know, I wish you had told that to so-and-so. But the, the bottom line is we've got to define our terms, know exactly what we're talking about, maybe even demonstrate to each other what we're talking about. Before we get into arguments, where we're literally talking past each other on things we might really be in salient agreement on.
0: There you go. That, that would solve a lot of the problem right there.
1: Well, look at the whole anti-police thing today. Uh, we've got closed minds. Uh, more, I've got to say, on the other side than the police side. And, you know, consider me prejudiced toward one side or not, if you will, I don't care. But one thing I've noticed over the years, you ask, what, what have I seen change? In the old days, police and lawyers shared one critical paradigm. They were both told, you don't discuss your cases in the press. It'll all come out in court. And in the last decade, we have seen that paradigm change. The accusing side now is using press conferences as a weapon. And it's, it's gotten worse. Uh, one plaintiff's lawyer in particular has created the, uh, the attack strategy, if you will, of hiring a very high-powered PR guy to create a whole trope of here's what happened. And your, your classic example goes back to actually an armed citizen shooting uh, ten years ago. Now the ten years ago next month, uh, the shooting of Trayvon Martin by George Zimmerman. Now Martin's parents, I don't think that they, they knew that the the kid was in trouble that he was getting in a thug life. Okay, that that's why a kid who lived in North Miami was halfway up a long state with his dad in the Orlando area, Sanford, Florida. Uh, It it was like a tough love thing. It's like, look, I can't do anything with this kid. Can you do something with him? Not until the prosecution finally unlocked his cell phone could anybody have known just how deep Trayvon Martin was into thug life. But your your 17-year-old son has been shot to death. He was unarmed. And whether you want revenge or you want justice or you think the two are the same thing, you want something. They hired an attorney named Benjamin Crump. And if you're not familiar with the name, it would be very much worth your time to look him up. I'm not, I know you know him, Lee, but some, some of the listeners yeah. may not. He brought in a very high-powered publicist named Brian Julison. And between the two of them, in just a couple of days, uh, they got the, the picture of Trayvon Martin at age 12, uh, pre-adolescent. Uh, he was, he towered over George Zimmerman at age 17 at the time of his death. And they juxtaposed that with the ugliest picture they could find of George Zimmerman. They created the meme of here's a sweet, innocent child skipping down the street with a box of Skittles when the evil racist guns him down to satisfy his racist bloodlust. Now, that was February, late February of 2012. Uh, The trial, which lasted for weeks, concluded on July 13, 2013. The jury found him not guilty. And if you actually look back, if people would just look back and read the transcript of that trial, everything from the forensic evidence to the eyewitness testimony made it clear George Zimmerman was telling the truth, and the prosecution's theory was literally impossible. But no one on his side had spoken in time. Uh, By the time he uh, had retained uh, Mark O'Mara and Don West for the defense, they did put up a website that, as soon as they got the evidence, got it up. But they did not have the reach, the power of the PR machine that was working on the other side. Now, it's been a decade later. George Zimmerman, even though he was conclusively proven to have told, told the truth and fired in self defense, is still today unable to find employment, he's one of the most hated men in America, because his side of the story was not told. Now, fast forward from there, two years, Ferguson, Missouri. Uh, Michael Brown, the gentle giant, is walking down the street when the evil white racist policeman reaches out the window of his patrol car, grabs him by the throat, drags him into the patrol car, The poor boy struggles to defend himself, runs the evil white racist policeman, chases him down, and while his hands are up and he's begging him not to shoot, guns him down in the street. Well, the city burned over that. And you you saw the the embers of the the fires of Ferguson landing and setting fires all over the country, as we saw later, much later in the George Floyd thing. And if you look back at that actual incident, Michael Brown, uh, 18 years old, I believe, was six foot three, almost 300 pounds. Minutes before that encounter, there's video of him that many of you watching this have seen, Uh, the uh, convenience store surveillance film of him grabbing a small Asian man who didn't like him stealing a box of cigarillos and slamming him into a a wall or some shelving. For that officer to have reached out the window and dragged a 290-pound man through the window into a patrol car while he is seatbelted, uh, it would have required the Fantastic Four to combine the, you know, the Hulk with the uh, elastic man. What the evidence actually showed, which is why the grand jury refused to indict, was the first gunshot, first Michael Brown's DNA was on off, Officer Wilson's six hour P229R. The first wound in this area of, of Brown's hand was fired at virtually contact distance while he's trying to disarm and murder a police officer with his own gun. He turns and runs. Well, you're the cop. We've got a man who's just tried to disarm and kill a police officer. He's an obvious danger to the community. He pursues. Brown turns, lunges at him, the shots are fired, and he falls. The, the plaintiff's own expert witness, Michael Bott, one of the most respected forensic pathologists in the country, admitted none of those shots came in from the back. Every single witness, and you, you can read this, folks, uh, don't take my word for it or anybody else's, uh, normally grand jury transcripts are super secret. In the interest of public safety, this one was made public. Uh, budget yourself some time to read it because it goes over a thousand pages. But if you look at the transcript of the grand jury hearing of uh, Officer Darren Wilson and read the death of Michael Brown, you'll see every witness who testified, hands up, don't shoot, admitted they were lying, I I said it for the community, well, I didn't actually see it, but I heard it. And we have seen that paradigm repeat again and again. Now, Let's go back to Los Angeles, Uh, early 1990s, the Rodney King riots. The public, the nation, hell, the world was inflamed. Well, they saw George Holliday's video, but what they saw was not the whole video. The whole video lasted something like 56 seconds. What the public saw was probably the ugliest 10 seconds. of Rodney King is face down, the arms are in a cactus plant position that if he was standing would look like, hands up, don't shoot. And you see the officers uh, striking him with the PR-24 batons. When you watch the whole video, it begins with Rodney King's lunge at Officer Powell and his grab for Powell's Beretta. Beretta uh, Powell spins away, gets some body weight behind, one swing with the PR-24, probably the most effectively delivered blow of the fight. And as they're as they're striking him he goes to the ground they stop if you actually watch the video you'll see an ebb and flow the officers move in and they're striking when king is moving actively when he holds still and appears to surrender they fall back you actually see powell put his baton in the ring and start taking out his handcuffs then he goes to this position again and the hands remember on the ground and the officers move in. The officers have been taught to recognize that as what's called the Folsom Roll, from named after Folsom Penitentiary. As you're moving in on the suspect, the suspect pistons, rolls his body into you, takes your legs off from under you, and his momentum carries him right into your gun. That wasn't explained, that wasn't shown to the public until the trial. And only the people who saw it listen to it with open minds, knew it. All the rest of the world just figured when those officers were acquitted in the initial trial that that's it, it's racism, and you saw what happened. The the Rodney King riots. The city burned a billion dollars of property damage in 1990s dollars. Something like 60 deaths when the, the last mortally injured person died. Thousands of jobs lost in a community that most desperately needed Now, by the the end of the uh, first decade of the 21st century, LAPD had changed the paradigm. That started the policy that we're seeing now. Uh, When there's a potentially controversial use of force issue, the department calls a press conference. They say, here is what we know so far. Here is the 911 call that led to the shooting. Here is the response of the officers. Here is the body cam. Here is the dash cam. Here is the evidence. This is what we know so far, the investigation continues, we'll keep you apprised. And in the city that burned during the Rodney King riot, there have been no civil disturbances approaching that magnitude generated by any LAPD use of force sensitive. The closest they came was the sympathetic rioting, if you will, in the George Floyd matter. We've seen that again and again. Probably Las Vegas Metro has set the pace for doing the very best and most thorough of showing the public, here's our side of the story. And the the answer is this, it's human nature to see when when there is a false accusation, silence of the accused is seen as an admission of guilt, whether it's an individual or an organization. We've got to change that. The other side were the ones who kicked over the checkerboard and broke the rules and said, no, we, we will try this case in the court of public opinion to force a settlement and enrich ourselves. I know if somebody has to go to criminal court over it too, well, what do we care about his life? Our pockets are full, and our wallets are fat. When the other side is attacking you, if you do not stand up in that court of public opinion, you as an attorney in opinion have failed your duty to defend your client. And I think that's true, whether it's an officer-involved shooting or a potentially controversial armed citizen shooting. We need to be getting the word out. And let me give you an example from the armed citizen side. Uh, The John Dobb shooting, uh, D-A-U-B, in the uh, San Antonio area. Uh, John Dobb was a very skilled pistol shooter. Uh, Early one morning, he and his family are getting ready to go to work and school when a very large, violent, emotionally disturbed person literally batter[s] down the front door and attacks, And John Dobb had to shoot and kill him. Uh, The man turned out to be unarmed, although there was significant disparity of force, justifiable shooting, mentally ill, which uh, creates the sympathetic plaintiff, and that had enormous potential for trial in the courts of public opinion. He was a member of Armed Citizens Legal Defense Network. He called ACLDN. ACLDN got attorney Gene Anthes there before the blood had dried at the death scene. He did a press conference in the front yard of the home. And if you do a Google search for the John Dobb incident and you read all the, uh, uh, the unmonitored, non commentary in the newspaper accounts, what you'll see is instead of the public saying, oh my God, evil gun knot, blah, blah, blah. The majority are saying, thank God that man had a gun. We're sad for what his family had to go through even though we're sad for the family of the deceased. And that is the difference. When you're attacked on the street, or you're attacked in court, leaving your hands down is not the winning strategy.
0: Speaking of John Dobb, he and Eric Gilhouse and I are doing a panel discussion at TACCOM this year on the aftermath of deadly force incidents.
1: Not to be missed folks, not to be missed. I intend to be there for that one.
0: Good, excellent. Anything that I didn't ask you about that you would like to discuss? Because I, I know I'm watching the clock and we're getting close to your time limit there.
1: We are. No, I, I think uh, you did a good job. you for all the good information that you have been okay. able to gather and make available to people who otherwise would never have a chance to know that information existed. Thank you, Lee.
0: Well, thank you, Uh Uh, I've got a lot more questions I'd love to ask you. Maybe we'll do another episode, but I know where you're at closes in 15 minutes, so we got to get uh, closed up here. Uh, Thank you for your time. Um, I know when one of my guys was involved in an incident several years ago, uh, you immediately reached out and offered encouragement uh, for him, and I want to thank you for that. And thank you for having been a resource of information for me over these years.
1: Well, thank you, brother, and thank you and your officers for this service.
0: Right. And to the audience, uh, we, couldn't, we wouldn't be doing this if you weren't interested. And so we know you have a lot of things on your plate. So thank you for taking your time to spend here with us.